We are back for another week in the world of SAST, and I'm very excited for this episode, having wanted to have this founder on the show for a long time, and so with that, I'm thrilled to welcome Chen Amit, founder and CEO at Tipalti, the global payable automation platform that now remits $5 billion annually across 3 million suppliers. To date, Chen has raised over $146 million with Tipalti from the likes of Oren Zeeve, Dan Rose, Mike Chalfin, and then Greenspring, Truebridge, and Zero One Advisors, to name a few. Previously, Chen was CEO of Atrika, acquired by Nokia Siemens. He was is also co-founder and CEO of Verix, and at ECI Telecom, Chen founded its ADSL business unit and led it from inception to $100 million in annual sales. And I'd also want to say a huge thank you to Oren Zeev for both the intro today and some fantastic question suggestions, I really do appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, do you ever wonder who's keeping digital services running for companies like Zoom, Netflix, and DoorDash? Do you wonder who helps keep Peloton delivering equipment around the world on time? It's PagerDuty, 58% of the Fortune 100 relies on PagerDuty. You should too. PagerDuty is the central nervous system for your digital ecosystem. They use automation and machine learning to bring together the right people with the right information so they can address issues and opportunities in minutes and seconds, not hours. That means faster crisis response, fewer incidents, and happier customers. Right now, they're offering a free starter license, which includes unlimited alerting and on-call management for the first six months. Visit PagerDuty.com to sign up today. And if there's one thing that's more more apparent now than ever is that the future of work is here and digital automation is now essential for today's workforce. Tools have improved, but companies are still using outdated and manual processes to conduct business. Enter PipeFi. PipeFi is a workflow management software that makes business processes such as purchasing, onboarding, and recruiting hassle-free so requesters, processors, and managers are much more efficient. PipeFi seamlessly integrates with other tools in your toolchain to ensure a completely automated experience with a low to no code implementation, dispersed or remote team members, no problem. PipeFi can automate your requests from anywhere. And speaking of the future of work, you have to check out Largy Analytics. Focused exclusively on helping software teams embed analytics in commercial and enterprise applications. Their newest innovation, Largy Composer, empowers developers to easily create, customize, and embed analytic dashboards in your application with complete control over the end user experience and provides embedded self-service functionality that can be tailored to match the skill level of your end user. Largy Composer is also powered with smart data connectors to unlock modern data connectivity and query performance and a cloud-ready microservices architecture for speed and scale. So if you're looking for the fastest, easiest way to embed analytics in your application, download a free demo of Largy Composer at largyanalytics.com slash podcast. But that's quite enough from me, so now I'm very excited to hand over to Chen Amit, founder and CEO at Tipalti. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Chen, it is so great to have you on the show today. As I said, I've heard so many good things from Oren Zeev. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege. That is very kind of you. But before we dive in, I do want to start with a little bit of context. So how did you make your way into the wonderful world of tech and startups? And most importantly, come to found the game changer that is Tipalti. So I started in the tech world many years ago. And I actually started and made money as a youngster before the personal computer was created. It was Commodore 64, VIC-20. I was a geek programmer before the word geek was invented. So from very young age, I was a programmer and entered the world of tech at a very early age. I was always around starting new businesses, new projects, even at the start of my career, initially as a member of teams that started new businesses, then leading new businesses with only one 
piece of my experience being taking over as a CEO of an existing company, but all of the rest of my career was starting new businesses. So that's what I know what to do. That's my career. In terms of starting Tipalti, I sold another company in the telecommunication space in 2008. Uh, I was living in the Bay Area at that time, moved back to Israel, and then did some hobbies and some ran some of my ideas at some point in time called Oren, my co-founder in Tipalti, and told him that I'm itching to do something different. And if he learned of any interesting opportunity, I would love to hear about it. I think it was three or four months later, he calls me and says, look, one of my founders described a problem to me. Would you like to hear about that problem? We met together with that founder and that problem I found it interesting. And the rest is the history of Tipalti. I love that in terms of kind of that problem fit. I do want to ask you because post that, when you embarked on really trying to solve that problem, for the first year, a little birdie tells me that you were the only employee. And it's kind of contra the rapid scaling Silicon Valley startup where people raise a pre-seed before anything else, hire a team and get going as fast as possible. With the kind of being the only employee strategy, why did you start that way? And I guess what were the benefits? So <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you the whole story. When I met that founder of that portfolio company of Orange, his name is Yariv and the, the company is Infolinks. When I met him, he described the problem to me. Initially, it sounded like an obvious problem, paying suppliers, paying payees. It's so obvious. It should have been available since the beginning of money. Then I, I started the research and through the research, in addition to Infolinks, I immediately met another founder of another company who expressed the same pain. But the next, you know, dozen companies I met were not as positive and don't do that. There's no pain. We have other alternatives. Just discouraged me from going that way. So I was in this conundrum. I had two people who were very passionate about the pain and the need to solve it. And then a dozen others who I equally respect who said, don't bother. So I, I thought, what do I do? There are two avenues to go. One is to prove to myself that there is a company here and start building it. The other avenue, which I liked just the same, was to just keep it as a project to solve it for these two companies, these two founders. I love programming. I haven't programmed for, I think, 17 years before that day. But I always had my pet project every year and I did some programming project almost every year. And I said, you know what? That's ideal. I'll just run it as a project for these two companies and gradually develop it. If it remains just for these two companies, I'll be happy. It'll make me a little money. I'll do my hobbies. It'll be a great balance. If it becomes a company, also great, you know, then we'll go forward and build a company out of it. And to be honest, I was really more towards the project version than the company version. And I was really happy. I was sitting with these two founders, exploring their pains, starting to develop mock-ups and MVPs, getting feedback, adjusting the MVPs, developing it, solving programming problems. I really loved that year. I really enjoyed it. So within six months, I had an MVP. It was live. It was revenue generating. And I had two happy customers by the end of the year. I had four customers, more than just having four customers. With one of those customers, I was in a competitive situation with a 500-person company, well-established, where a board member of that venture customer told them to explore that larger company if they want to look at a solution. And I won with that headwind against me. So I really felt confident that I was onto something. For a very specific segment at the time, it was only ad networks and crowdsourcing in Israeli companies. So the next 
question was, does it fly in the U.S.? Is the same pain available for U.S.-based companies? Because the Israeli market is limited. So I like to say that I doubled the company and went global. From one person in Israel, we became two people with one person in L.A. And he was responsible to exploring customers, opportunities, and trying to gain some wins in the U.S. And very quickly, we won two customers, one of which is still among our top 10. So two fairly sizable customers. So for the second year, it was mostly me doing all the engineering and product and most of sales out of Israel. And he's supporting me in the US. And later in the second year, we figured that it's company worthy and it's time to accelerate, raise money, more money and hire people and get an office. So that's the history of that part. Totally with you. I do have to unpack some elements there because there's some that are essentially too good for me not to double click on. And one of them is you mentioned the, kind of the size of the clients that you got really in the first one or two years being so prominent. I think a big thing that early stage companies struggle with is the balance between selling enterprises on the vision, what they can do, what they will do, what the product roadmap looks like versus what they actually have today in the product. How do you advise founders on this balance and what works when successfully selling to huge companies that is a very young company? So they were large. I won't say huge. Both of them were like a thousand person companies. So not minor, but not your General Electrics and Coca-Colas. Look, Early stage companies, I like the analogy that it's like riding a motorcycle, full speed, max speed at the edge of a cliffhanger with the road crumbling below your wheels. So it's just a risky endeavor and you have to take risks and just devote yourself to addressing the risks. I can tell you that the first customer that went live, the moment the customer went live, obviously the system collapsed. It collapsed for probably half a day and we just had to scramble and solve it. But that was a great teaching moment for us and we grew from that. And then the second customer was willing to go forward, but they wanted our complete legal agreements to be modified. So we scrambled and changed and they wanted us insured and all kinds of things that took us a while to develop. And we did and we scrambled and solved for them. And then they didn't like our security mechanism. So we adjusted that. So you just need to be uber responsive to commit, you know, United Days, they say, especially in the early days, to just deliver the value that uh, they expect from you. But there are risks with that. You cannot come with a fully baked, ready, mature product in the early days. You have to come with the MVP. You have to be agile. You have to listen and adapt, listen and adapt, but just adapt very quickly. And there's no way around it. It's a risky business, more for the customers maybe than for the entrepreneurs. But yeah, that's the only way I know how to go about it. Can I ask, on the listen and adapt element, how do you determine between the customer feedback to listen to and adapt to versus the customer feedback to disregard because it's maybe specialist, it's maybe wrong, or it may not fit with your kind of product vision moving forward? How do you determine between keep and disregard? Great question. I love the question because I feel that I built my career, I built my confidence as a product person by saying no to my customer. I'll give you the example, not from Tipalti, but I was in a telecommunications world. We're building an ADSL system way back when, 96. The internet just started. ADSL was not something known. And Deutsche Telekom, one of the largest carriers in the world, told us that he doesn't like the way we build the system. 
And I felt strongly that the only way that this product is going to succeed is by ignoring the advice of the largest customer in the world for us. Later, they bought billions of dollars of that product. And the reason I was so adamant about it, because we had a strategy for the product. It was a mass market, low cost. There was reasoning why I said I needed to decline that customer feedback. And I was right then. And the same is true in Tipalti. Actually, that first customer, Infolinks, the person who brought the idea to me was one of the founders, the president. But the COO of the company, at one point in time, decided to kill the project and said there's no value and we shouldn't do it. And more specifically, he didn't like part of the technology that we used. We used something called an iframe. But I knew, I knew deep inside that if I do anything but the way I designed the product on that aspect, that it cannot scale, it cannot become broadly used. It required too much from the customers and the customers unfortunately don't care enough. It's part of the strength of the party is that customers don't care enough about this problem. So they need someone else to solve it for them. And if we want to solve it, it needs to be frictionless. So there's some logic that I knew were critical for the success of the strategic vision of the product. You need to have a backbone to have a strategic vision, to know what are the key success factors. And even if the customer tells you that the way you're going is wrong, you need to have the backbone. You need to have the trust in the strategy and the vision to proceed with your way. There are things, I must say, there are things that every year some customers We'll go back to the same question that first customer told us, that they didn't like one version of the product, but they are critical for the success of Tipalti to this day. And we're still, nine and a half years later, we're still not willing to back down and change the way we operate it. So it's a balancing act. You need to listen and internalize and believe in what the customer says. If you do not believe and it doesn't become part of your vision, then you shouldn't follow it. Can I ask you, I love that about having the backbone when it comes to products. I think a lot of early stage founders, and especially first time founders, are bluntly more nervous to push back even elegantly with customers, especially large customers. Is there a right way to do it in terms of how you frame your discussion and disagreement in terms of the product moving forward? Yeah, I'll go back to these two examples. So in the Deutsche Telekom example, again, the first project we signed, and this discussion was prior to us winning the project, the first project was $100 million right? It's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. It was just deploying tens of thousands of lines in Deutsche Telekom. And it was the chief architect for that project who said, we don't like the way you do it. We prefer you do it in a different way. And I explained to him our vision. I explained what his vision should be and how our vision aligns with his vision and why, if he insists, his approach will not scale for him. I said, you know what? I hear you. I understand what you're saying. I'll open it up. It was an RFP. I'll open it up for your version. But just for you to know, you might lose the deal for that. So there was an RFP. Instead of limiting it to that variant that he wanted, he opened it, allowed our variant. And eventually we won. We won against the giants, the biggest monsters of the world, because it was such a great competitive advantage that it created such a competitive advantage that others could not compete And the same happened with that other customer. And it's not always like that. We lost some customers. So we definitely lost customers who said, 
we're not willing to work with you with an iframe. Iframe is kind of the example. And one in probably 300 deals will say, I'm not willing to work with you. And I'm willing to lose that many and more because I believe in the vision, I believe in the strategy, and I believe that this is critical for our success and for the customer success and for our ability to support the customer. So the way to engage in a discussion in a professional way is to explain your vision, to show how it aligns with the customer's vision and how deviating from it will hurt your vision and the customer's vision. And if they understand it, then they will play ball. If they don't understand it, then you, you need to be willing to lose that customer. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I love that kind of willingness to lose the customer and, and having the backbone on the product there. As I said, I, I think it's a really strong mindset to adopt. When they kind of do convert and they do align with you, you know, obviously the company scales, sales scale, and you move from the early stage company with doubling with one to two employees. I love that story. But you move from that early stage company to a growth stage company with hundreds of employees as more and more sales convert. I'd love to hear, what are your thoughts and reflections almost on the biggest differences for you between growth and early stage from the leader's perspective. One of the things I love most about my job is that it changes, I want to say every year, every year it changes so much that it's so interesting and so exciting and it's just different. My role changes so far has changed almost every year. And in the early days, I was the product manager, the programmer, the QA. Well, actually, I did have an outsourced QA, I must say, through Upwork. So I was the programmer, the accountant, the marketing, the website programmer, etc. And that was great. By the way, at that time, if you called our line, you had uh, press one for marketing, press two for support, press three for finance. They all led to me, but it gave the sense that it's a bigger company than it was. So yeah, initially you're doing everything. You know everything, you do everything. It all relies on you and that's how it works. Then you need to teach. You have more people, you need to teach. You let go a little bit, but you know everything. You still know everything, but you don't do everything. For the first three or four years, I was still writing some code part of my time. Then you know most of the things and you do less because you have more people, more managers. You need to train them and enable them and empower them. And today my role is completely different. Today it's more about setting the vision and the strategy, hiring executives, fundraising, of course. And there's one other part of my job, which I call starting fires. Every few months I will start a small fire, whether it is to burn dead grass or to expose an opportunity, but you're in the position to see all of those opportunities or many of those opportunities. Obviously, you have a large team and they see many of the opportunities themselves. But another big difference between the early days and today is funding. In the early days, you really have to fight to convince in your vision and in the path that you're taking in these days, it's more of a metrics exercise. The abundance of money is quote-unquote unlimited. You really have to optimize for growth with the assumption of unlimited availability of funding and I optimize for growth. So yeah, these are some of the differences between the early stage and, and the growth I'm stage. I'm interested not to, not to ask that. In terms of kind of the infinite supply of money, as you said there, absolutely, I think we see that, especially kind of as you go further and further down the funnel and focusing on the growth. I'm interested though, like, how does that mean that you think about unit economics? Is it like growth at all costs? Is that the right mindset? How should one think about unit economics in a mindset of 
infinite supply of capital? So uh, I'll tell you where the infinite supply of capital makes a difference. Definitely, we were lucky or fortunate to have great unit economics from the get-go. So the one key metric that makes life so great for us, we have less than 1% annual dollar churn. When you have 1% annual dollar churn, it cures so many other things. So that's great. Most of our metrics are just phenomenal. So that didn't make an influence that much. The only area that it makes a difference, if you know when Amazon was asked about the payback periods and customer acquisition costs and LTV to CAC and all of that, the answer that they gave was that since their customers stay with them forever, they are willing to invest as much as they need because they know that the customer will continue to produce for them. And when you have 1% churn like we do, the lifetime value like we do, that obviously drives an LTV to CAC indefinitely. Like just with an LTV, we don't assume 100 years LTV because of a 1% churn, but we have a very high LTV. So we are less sensitive to the payback periods, right? Because our customers will keep on producing for such a long time, I'm willing for the CAC to go higher because I know that the lifetime value is so productive. So the way I look at it, I'm willing to invest in a business that has this ROI, right? We will get to the return on investment. It just starts later in the process. So for instance, for some of our segments, we have 18 months, 12 months, nine months, 21 months. We're fine with that. There are some segments where it exceeds that timeline. Like we won't go beyond 24 months of payback period, but given an unlimited supply of money, you need to be willing to invest more during this phase of land grab, right? It's a land grab. The R target market has roughly 600,000 companies in it. Between everyone in the market, we're servicing three, four, five percent of the market. So it's still a white space and it's a land grab period. And I'm willing to invest more and to accept a longer payback period because it's this land grab phase. But all the other key metrics, margins and churn, definitely churn and organic growth and all of that are in a perfect situation. I mean, incredible to hear about that dollar retention. The importance also that is placed on kind of upsell and expansion of accounts. I'm too interested. In terms of like pricing mechanisms, I'm always challenged by the right pricing mechanism. Because if you have a usage-based pricing mechanism, obviously you disincentivize people from using the product more. And then if you have alternative forms, you maybe don't have some optimal value extraction for you. And so how do you think about like effective upsell and maybe the pricing mechanism that's worked for you in terms of achieving that? Yeah, I can tell you what our pricing mechanisms are, and I think they've worked wonders for us. So we price across three main levers, and the fourth that is in the making. The three main levers are what we call SaaS fees at large. SaaS fees would be platform fee, monthly subscription, per user, but generally around the software and the usage of the software. And for the most part, they are fixed with the exception of per user, but that's the software fees. They are one of the levers. The other two levers are transaction fees and currency conversion fees. And the more business the customer drives through Tipalti, the more revenue we have, the faster and the further the customer grows, the more they are successful, the more we are successful. And that's what I love about transaction currency conversion fees. The more the customer is successful, the more we are successful. And for instance, today in the COVID times, if the customer business contracts, then we will contract with them. And I'm fine with that 
because the customer, he or she are under pressure and they cannot pay too much for the product. So the balance between some SaaS fees and transaction currency conversion worked wonders for us. Many of our customers are high growth companies, right? We're based in San Francisco. You have the Twitches and the Twitters and the GoDaddy's and Aplavin and a lot of very high growth companies. And the more they grow, the better they do, we do. And that works wonders for us. We have the SaaS fees for a host of reasons, predominantly because we provide value through software. And we can show the ROI that we bring through that value. The transaction currency conversion fees are paid mostly by the suppliers. So it's not the pain for our customer. The SaaS fees are paid by our customer. They have control. They can decide who pays what. But this balance allows us to generate revenue without hurting the customer too much and position the product for the value it provides. Can I ask you, Jan, do you find that there's a tipping point? You mentioned in terms of customers kind of shifting their transactions over to Tipalti. In the early days, I mean, obviously now Tipalti is a much more prestigious name and got a lot of social validity and credibility to it. But in the early days, did you notice people landing and expanding in terms of how they shifted their transactions? And I guess, what was the tipping point that caused people to go from putting 10% through to going, ah, Tipalti is fantastic, let's just put them all through Tipalti? So I didn't describe what we do, but what Tipalti does is kind of a holistic supplier and payment management solution. So you onboard your P's, we do tax compliance, we do AML compliance at the front end, then we do payments, and at the tail end we do reconciliation and tax reporting. Because it's such a holistic solution, it doesn't make sense to do anything but 100% of your business with Tipalti. How would you do tax compliance without us? How would you do AML compliance? Like, will you have two systems for tax compliance, two processes, two processes for reconciliation? It just begs for a holistic end-to-end usage. And I would say 98% of our customers use us exclusively for the use case. So Amazon is a customer. It's not that all of Amazon runs on Tipalti. It's the one business unit called Twitch, huge business unit. In Twitter, there was an RFP for one business unit, Mopub, and then another business unit and another business unit. And today, literally every dollar for every supplier touches Tipalti one way or another. So the model itself lends to defaulting on a business unit or a use case that does everything with us. And when that business unit grows, we grow with them. So there's not much of an upsell from that perspective. It's more of an expanding to additional business units, less so that they carve out business that they do with us and they can add more later on. Yeah, no, I get you totally in terms of kind of not making sense to shift partially. I do want to ask, you said about expansion now, before we move into the quickfire, I'm too intrigued in terms of expansion of the team. Obviously, the world's changed so seismically with COVID. I'm interested now in a remote world, how do you think about hiring when everyone is working from home? Yeah, that's a great question that we've been discussing internally for the last few weeks. So obviously, we paused our hiring at the beginning of COVID, but we re-energized the plans back to the original plan and we're roughly 300 people and we're hiring another 100 people in the next six months and that is a major undertaking under COVID always but under COVID specifically so we're doing the following things one we're adding to the interview process stages steps and questions that are meant to evaluate if that individual is a good fit for a work from home environment so 
You need to be a little bit more of a self-starter. You need to be more communicative. You need to be a little bit more social when you work from home. So we try to assess these skills. We opt to hire, especially because during this environment, there's also more availability of talent. We are opting to hire a little bit more experienced people. So if before we would hire out of college, we are now trying to limit the out of college hires and hire with two or three years of experience. So the person knows a little bit of what it is to be working in a company. And last, we have three major offices, one in Israel, one in Vancouver, Canada, and one in San Mateo. We're relevant where it's possible and makes sense. We will opt to hire in the office where there is some work in the office. So in Israel, we can work in the office. In Vancouver, we can work in the office. In San Mateo, we cannot. We will still hire in San Mateo, but for roles that we are indifferent, whether they are in San Mateo or in other office, we'll prefer the other office. No, I'm with you in terms of kind of favoring the other office. I do want to move into my favorite element of any episode, which is actually the quick fire round, Chen. So I say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. Are you ready to rock and roll? Let's do that. So what do you believe most that others around you maybe disbelieve? I think today the bon ton is to believe that work from home is great and it's changing work for the better. And I believe that work from home is great for some, but not for all. And there is data to support it. I'm very data driven. And there's data to support that younger, high growth companies do worse in remote. So that research I'm referring to was for companies that operated in complete remote, but the same is true for work from home. I think the collaboration is lost. That magic that happens when people just meet in the corridor, when they overhear something, there is a lot of value in that magic, especially when you're building, when you're creating, when all that creative part in companies' life cannot completely be replaced while work from home. How do you think the world of fundraising is impacted from work from home and remote work? For us, the reason I stopped hiring in March was because I didn't know how the investor world will work, right? Because at our pace of growth, we can fund ourselves a certain pace of growth, but we're trying to grow so fast that we still need to raise funds from the outside. And I was worried that I didn't know how to ex- what to expect from investors. But we are getting a ton of inbound from investors. And when speaking with fellow CEOs, I think that investors are flocking the larger companies, the 50, 100, 200 million dollar rounds will be easier and possibly venture will be a little bit harder. For me, from my perspective, when I engage with investors, I really am not engaging with investors that I don't have a relationship with. Like, especially if there is any board advisor seat or just, I'm very careful with my investors. So I would limit the people I speak with to people I know I'm comfortable with, I've known for a while, and I won't open new discussions with investors that I've never met or I don't have a history with. Totally get you in terms of that existing relationship. Can I ask, what single trait do you want to see most in an investor when you are selecting them? You know, I'm spoiled because I've worked with Oren for so long and the other investors, Dovi and the rest, and I just have a great team. And I will just look at Oren's traits that I love the most. And I think one of Oren's traits that I love the most is that he's just the ultimate optimist. He's the most optimistic person I know 
He is always positive, and I think it's a great trait for him to have. And the other is that it's a saying in Hebrew that someone is trying to hold the steering wheel with you, right? He doesn't try to hold the steering wheel with me. He lets me run the company. He provides advice. He provides connections. He makes intros. If I need to consult with him on a strategic topic, he's the smartest person on the planet. But he doesn't try to run the company with me. And I have had different experiences with VCs who just try to be too close with the CEO. He's very close with me, right? We're friends before we were partners. But try to hold the steering wheel together with the CEO. And I think that's wrong. I think you need to let the CEO run the company. So just his optimism and his ability to let the founders run the companies and provide value where he can. What an Aurangzeev fan club. I'm totally with you. I think Auron is fantastic. So it makes me very happy to hear that. Final one though, Chen. What's the biggest challenge for you with your role today with Tabalti? I think two challenges. One is just growing at the pace we grow, especially from a people perspective while in COVID, while predominantly in work from home. This is a departure from our experience. Work from home works for us excellent with the existing team. It'll be different exercise with 25% of the company joining and onboarding and learning the ropes while work from home. So that is a challenge that we're focusing our attention on and trying to build the processes and the thoughts, thought process and the systems that will allow us to be successful. The other is also a people challenge, which is how do you maintain your agility? How do you maintain speed, aggressiveness, risk-taking when you grow? We're 300 people, we'll be 400, then we'll be 600. We're getting there. And if in the past I knew everything, I did most of the things, and then I was able to influence most of the things in the company, I'm getting a little bit more remote from most of the people, and I can't influence everything myself. And the influence needs to come in some other way. And this is where I'm thinking, what do we need to change in order to maintain agility, maintain aggressiveness, maintain risk-taking in a safe way? So it's just this balancing act. Totally with you in terms of that balancing act. As I said, I've known Oren for a long time and he's always said the most incredible things, Shen. So this has been such a pleasure and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So much fun having that discussion and such exciting times ahead for Tipalti. And if you'd like to see more from us, you can on Instagram at hstabbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, do you ever wonder who's keeping digital services running for companies like Zoom, Netflix, and DoorDash? Do you wonder who helps keep Peloton delivering equipment around the world on time? It's PagerDuty. 58% of the Fortune 100 relies on PagerDuty. You should too. PagerDuty is the central nervous system for your digital ecosystem. They use automation and machine learning to bring together the right people with the right information so they can address issues and opportunities in minutes and seconds, not hours. That means faster crisis response, fewer incidents, and happier customers. Right now, they're offering a free starter license, which includes unlimited alerting and on-call management for the first six months. Visit pagerduty.com to sign up today. And if there's one thing that's more apparent now than ever, it's that the future of work is here and digital automation is now essential for today's workforce. Tools have improved, but companies are still using 
using outdated and manual processes to conduct business. Enter Pipefy. Pipefy is a workflow management software that makes business processes such as purchasing, onboarding, and recruiting hassle-free, so requesters, processors, and managers are much more efficient. Pipefy seamlessly integrates with other tools in your toolchain to ensure a completely automated experience with a low to no-code implementation, dispersed or remote team members, no problem. Pipefy can automate your requests from anywhere. And speaking of the future of work, you have to check out Largy Analytics. Focused exclusively on helping software teams embed analytics in commercial and enterprise applications. Their newest innovation, Largy Composer, empowers developers to easily create, customize, and embed analytic dashboards in your application with complete control over the end user experience and provides embedded self-service functionality that can be tailored to match the skill level of your end user. Largy Composer is also powered with smart data connectors to unlock modern data connectivity and query performance and a cloud-ready microservices architecture for speed and scale. So if you're looking for the fastest, easiest way to embed analytics in your application, download a free demo of Largy Composer at largyanalytics.com slash podcast. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week.